We're going to be in Matthew 17, continuing in our series through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and I love this. This is a, a couple of stories that are not, the point is not the same between the two, but they are linked together thematically, okay? Um, it's a continuing conversation that really starts here and, and leads us into Matthew, the end of Matthew 18, which is about interpersonal issues. Like when you're offended with each other, what do you do? When someone sins against you, a brother or sister sins against you, what do you do? Okay, So we're headed towards that. All of this plays into that topic. Okay, And that'll be either next week if Scott's not here or the following week if he is. All right. So the disciples, interestingly enough, did not always get along. Hard to fathom, right? With, with Peter in the mix, I mean, you know, it is what it is. But, and I, I think it's interesting, too, how often, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter is mentioned in a negative light. And sometimes I wonder. I just sort of wonder if Matthew was kind of like, oh, that Peter, I don't know what to do with that guy, right? You just wonder what, what Matthew was feeling towards Peter. But that's, that's very much in the subtext. There's nothing overt about that. But you can see some examples. I'm not going to read them this morning. In Mark 9, Luke 9, and Matthew 20, which is farther ahead from where we are this morning, examples of, of rivalry coming up inside of this group of 12 men. Competition. Who's the best? Even involving their mother coming to Jesus and saying, which one of my sons is going to be first? It's kind of gross, isn't it? And this is happening. These are supposed to be the examples. These are, these are the, the, the future hope of the, the, the mission of God in the earth. Okay? This is our last best hope, Obi-Wan. Right? This is a little joke for the nerds in the room, nerd dads. All right? There's your, now it's a Father's Day sermon. But, um, right, I mean, they're just constant kind of comparing and, and, and arguing and wondering who's the best. And this is the situation. Jesus gets annoyed with it, as you can imagine. He's going to give a set of instructions here that becomes the foundation of how they are to treat each other and their enemies because they will have some enemies. We've already seen that. When Jesus says, take up your cross. How they treat each other is a direct reflection on Jesus, and that's true for us also. So, let's start with Matthew 17, verse 24 to 27. I just ruined my timer. Nobody wants that. Hold on a second. There we go. All right. Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he, meaning he does pay his taxes, all right? And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So there was a thing called a temple tax. This is not the civil tax. This is a temple tax. where the, the, And that money went to support the activities of the temple. Okay, And so the, the temple tax collector comes by and sees Peter. And apparently he's figured out or suspects that somehow Jesus keeps missing out 
on the opportunity to pay the temple tax. And he asked Peter, doesn't your master, your rabbi, pay the temple tax? Like, of course, and Peter, I don't know what he knew, but I, I'm assuming for, you know, it's not written here, but I would assume he knew Jesus did not pay the temple tax. At least he had never seen Jesus pay the temple tax because it's clear here that Jesus did not pay the temple tax, okay? And he has a reason, a very specific reason why he does not. And so Peter, Jesus either knew supernaturally or overheard that conversation, and Peter comes inside. They're probably at Peter's house, and Jesus questions them, saying, so Peter, uh, if there's a king who taxes his people, does he tax his sons or does he tax the people? And Peter says, well, you, the king wouldn't tax his sons, he would tax the people. And so Jesus says, well, then the sons are free, meaning my sons, you guys, including me, are free. You don't have to pay the temple tax. Why? Because Jesus is the king of that temple. The temple belongs to him. Jesus gets to do whatever he wants. It's why Jesus was okay to go into the temple later and kick over tables and make a scene because it's his temple. He, he owns it. And he gets to decide. It also shows you that there's a shift happening, right? That the temple, we know what happens. Later, Peter explains it. The temple is now made of living stones. Jesus, God, the presence of God has left the building and moved into a people, okay? And Jesus is kind of going, look, the temple tax thing, I don't have to pay it. You don't have to pay it. You're free. But what does he say? In order not to be an offense or a stumbling block to them, being the tax collector and all the people that would find out that Jesus, this rabbi, was not paying his temple tax, he says, go and I will make supernatural provision for you to pay that tax. So your freedom to not pay the tax is not greater than the need to not be a stumbling block to them. And it's so important to Jesus that he makes a supernatural provision for Peter to pay that tax to that guy for him and for Jesus. That's challenging. Because if this was me, if I was Jesus, <laughs> I would have stopped right at the part where he says, the sons don't have to pay the tax, you're free. And we would have been, yay, we don't have to pay. End of story. There's your parable. Right? Jesus doesn't stop there, and he goes on. In fact, Paul uses this exact principle later to solve some issues, which I'll talk about in a minute in the church in Corinth. Jesus also didn't fast like everyone else. We see this trend, right? Jesus didn't follow the hand-washing regulations like everyone else. He endorsed his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, all these things that he did differently. But here he says, but you know what? It's not worth the offense. And he's teaching Peter a lesson. What's interesting here is that Jesus then tells Peter to go and hook a fish. I love the idea that there's supernatural provision made for something when you give up your freedom. I think this has direct implications if you run business or do business at all. The idea of treating someone else as more important than you, even if it costs you money. We had this weird ethic in America that money, like if it's business, we have a separate set of rules, right? It's just business. It's money. If it's going to cost me money, there's a different set of rules than the rest of life. 
But Jesus is like, no, 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 look, you treat other people as more important than you, and you avoid unnecess- being an unnecessary stumbling block to them, even if it costs you money, and I'll provide for you. Like, what's the problem? You think you're not going to have enough? You can't provide? I'm, I will pull a coin out of the mouth of a fish if I have to, to provide for you. Just do the right thing, right? It's a different way to live. So let's be really clear before anyone starts not paying their taxes. <laughs> One, this is a temple tax. It's not a civil tax. Later, Jesus says, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You don't get to use this as a loophole for not paying the IRS man. Okay, sorry. It is what it is. Pay your taxes. Jesus tells Peter that they are free not to pay the tax, but tells him to pay it anyway in order to not create an unnecessary offense. Okay, this doesn't also mean that no one should ever be offended with you, and that if someone's offended with you, then you have failed. That is also not true. Everybody was offended with Jesus so much so that they killed him. Okay? But what were they offended about? They were offended about the truth. They were not, this is an unnecessary offense. Jesus is going, it's two shekels. I can pull two shekels out of a fish and avoid offending this guy and avoid being a stumbling block to him. And so it's worth doing that, okay? Your freedom is not the highest good. It's hard, isn't it? But this is America, man. We're all about the freedom, right? America! Bald eagles and the whole thing, right? But your freedom is not the highest good. Counting others others as more important than yourself is. That's Jesus' thing. It's what he did to the point of taking up his cross and dying for people that hated him. So Paul uses this as a foundational principle in his answering the dispute in Corinth over whether or not it was okay to eat food that was initially sacrificed to idols. So you had food there, meat, that they would use in pagan rituals, and then they'd have meat left over, and so you could buy that meat for cheap. And some people in the church were buying it and eating sweet, discounted meat, right? It's on sale. And they'd buy that meat and they'd feed their families with it. And other people were like, you can't do that, that's wrong. You know what that was used for? They're like, yeah, we got to eat, you know? And, And it was this kind of dispute, it was like a secondary, third level kind of issue that no one quite knew how to solve but they were dividing over it what paul says is amazing he says just what jesus says same principle you are free to eat it but don't be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters so if you're going to be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters it'd be better not to eat it you restrict your own freedom in order to love well your brothers and sisters In fact, I would say, biblically speaking, the only thing that can limit our freedom in Christ is love. And love always costs you something. It always restricts you. It always means you're not doing something that you were free to do, and you chose not to do or not to experience or not to be blessed in some way, and instead you sacrifice something for yourself to love someone else and prefer someone else. That is, the if you're not doing that, it's not love. It always costs you, doesn't it? And you're happy to do it because we just love loving people, right? It's the weirdest thing. 
This is, Paul's, this is the way Paul keeps the church together in Corinth. It's the theme of the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 13, right? He's got this other situation where all these people are using their gifts and they're all getting in each other's way. It's chaos. And they're all competing. One person gives a prophecy, another person says, I can do it better, gives another prophecy saying the same thing, apparently. And they're all just competing, and it's noise, and it's chaos. And what Peter says is, 1 Corinthians 13, just love each other. You're just like a banging gong. Stop being a stumbling block. Your freedom is not the highest good. So he defines a stumbling block as an unnecessary temptation to sin that you put in front of someone else. This seems to be the same definition that Jesus is working from here. It's an unnecessary, it's like throwing a stone in front of somebody who's walking along and causing them to trip into sin. We've all been in this situation in one way or another. Have you ever won an argument and then realized that your relationship with that person lost? I mean, if you're married, you've definitely had that experience. You win the point but lose and their whole relationship loses. And you kind of feel like, oh, it's kind of an empty win. Now she won't talk to me, right? Did I really win? Who won? I'm not sure who won. Friendships are the same way. Have you ever demanded your right to do something even when it encroached on someone else's? Have you ever felt justified in hurting someone else because they hurt you first? It's the same idea. You hurt me, therefore I now have this right in our relationship to hurt you back, to get justice. And so you hurt them and you feel okay about it because they hurt you first. In a valiant effort to defend the truth, have you ever been unnecessarily angry, prideful, or offensive? <laughs> oh, what an obvious question, right? It's to defend the truth, all right? Jesus defended the truth often and offended people often, but he had a way of doing it where he didn't unnecessarily offend people. He was not a stumbling block. This is the principle that Jesus is teaching Peter at this moment. Being free to do something doesn't give you permission to be a stumbling block to them. People will be offended by the truth. We need, I need to, be, we need to be careful here because there is a really bad philosophy and belief system in the world that says, if you offend me, that's the worst possible thing. Even, have you noticed the public apologies we get now? They always start with, if you were offended, I'm sorry. Like that's the measure of if you did something wrong, is if someone's offended. Well, if, so I'm only apologizing to those offended. Whether what I did or said was actually wrong is immaterial at this point. No one even cares. It's for those who were offended, I'm sorry. Well, are you sorry or not? Did you do a bad thing or not? If you didn't, why apologize? If you did, apologize to everybody. Right? Maybe the people who weren't offended should have been. Right? It's insane to me, that phrase. Please never say it. If you were offended, I'm sorry. Either you're wrong or you're right. If you're wrong, apologize. If you're not, don't. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about tempting someone else to sin because you're demanding your own rights. So then we read on Matthew 18. The situation 
doesn't get better, we start to see this competition and the same principle of humility and considering others as more important than you becomes even more poignant to the whole group. It says, Matthew 18, verse 1 to 4, says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, quite possibly one of Peter's kids, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus points to a child, tells them that they must become like a child. This is clearly not about childlike innocence. He's not saying if you can be, become innocent like a child. Well, he's using the child as a metaphor for how we should all be, for his disciples. It's about how a child doesn't worry about his or her place in the world, social status, all these things. I have a father and a mother and a home and I'm fed. That's all I know. Think about a little baby in the crib. That child's not laying there worried about who's first or who's last or who likes me more. It's just there, right? And all it wants is to be warm and clothed and dry and fed. It wants to know that it has a daddy and a mommy and it's got a world. And that's all. it's not fighting for position or jockeying for it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, be like this. This kid's not worried. This kid's not going to ask me that question. What a dumb question. You want to know who's going to be first? If anybody's going to be first, it's going to be the humble people, not the proud people asking me questions like who's first. Right? A child simply knows he or she is loved by her parents, has a place in the family, and needs nothing more. This is the way we should be. Not worried about it. Just happy to be a child in daddy's house. He's a good father. That's it. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know if I'm scoring points or getting gold stars or if I'm doing better than everybody else. Then in verse 5 he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So Jesus goes on to say that those who receive his disciples, his children, are receiving him. I mean, I think that's an incredible that Jesus identifies with us so thoroughly and so deeply and so completely that when we are received, he takes it personally. When we are rejected, he takes that personally. When someone is a stumbling block to us, he takes it like someone being a stumbling block to him. Those who reject his disciples, Jesus takes that Personally, more than that, those who set themselves up as a stumbling block for his disciples, meaning tempting them to sin, Jesus will also take that very personally. And he, set, he says the strongest thing I can imagine, which is you will basically be executed in the worst possible way. Drowning was one of the ways that the Romans used to execute people. They liked crucifixion and they liked drowning. Terrible way to go. Especially the whole millstone thing. I mean, just think about it. Ugh, maybe don't think about it too long. 
Jesus is, is his metaphor. I don't use metaphors like that. Jesus got away with it, all right? That's what it's bad. He's just saying it's bad. It'll be better that you would die that way than to tempt one of my little children because this is how I feel about you, my disciples. <clears throat> I think this is interesting because it implies an assumption, which is that we will be rejected. Not only will we be rejected, but the world will tempt us to sin. It will be continually putting a stumbling block in front of us to trip over. To say, don't you want to do this? Don't you want to do that? So we are called to go out of our way to give up, even, even to give up our own personal freedoms in order to not be a stumbling block to the world and to each other, while at the same time the world will go out of its way to be a stumbling block to you. This is the life of Jesus. And it's what he's called us to follow him into. But there's comfort, I think. I think it's interesting here that Jesus is not talking to the crowds. He's not speaking to the crowd and warning them, you better leave my disciples alone and be a stumbling block to them. He's talking to his disciples in probably in Peter's living room with Peter's family there. He's saying, you are good. this is going to happen to you, but there's comfort because I'm paying attention. And when they reject you and revile you and are a stumbling block to you, I'm paying attention and I'm taking it personally and I will repay that evil with judgment. Just relax, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. I'm paying attention. And I think you need to hear that if you yourself... I shouldn't even say if. When you yourself have been mistreated and tempted. I think it's interesting that, yes, we are all responsible when we sin. When we give in to temptation and we sin, we're responsible for that before God, and Jesus died for that. We all know the guilt you feel when you sin, you give in to temptation. But from God's perspective, he is also concerned with the one who tempted you. And the one who, who tempted you is on the hook, and he is angry at them. And so if you have been tempted and drugged down some road that you shouldn't have been on, and you've got all this guilt, like, I wish I hadn't done that, I wish I hadn't have done that, I wish I hadn't have made this mistake, made that mistake, gone down this road, done this thing. There's two messages, not just one. There's two implications of the gospel. One is you are forgiven in Christ. But two, the one who led you down that road, ultimately Satan himself, is in serious trouble. There is a millstone, so to speak, tied around that person's neck right now. And they are standing at the precipice of a deep sea. And it is Jesus himself who will push them. It's that serious. There's comfort in that. <laughs> I think there's comfort in knowing that God, Jesus, was paying attention. The scary part of this is if you are one of those who tempts, has tempted others to sin, you need to repent of that. I think it's especially grievous when I hear stories 
about church leaders and ministers and pastors who lead others into sin secretly and then want to stand up in front of the church and pretend like they're holy and stand behind the pulpit and preach to the people while secretly they're tempting and dragging people and being a stumbling block everywhere they look. It's frightening. But it happens. Jesus isn't happy about it, and we need to understand it, and all the brokenness that those kinds of situations create. People with power and influence that destroy people and tempt people, and then when it comes out, they want to point the finger at them and say it's their fault. If that's happened to you, I didn't do it to you, but I'm sorry. But you need to realize that Jesus is paying attention and he takes it personally. It's not okay with him that that happened to you. So if the disciples don't let go of this rivalrous ambition between them, they will end up acting just like the world. You know, when you you are a stumbling block to other people, you are aligning yourself with Satan. Who was it that tempted Jesus? It was Satan. Jesus tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus calls him a stumbling block. As you're a st- Stop being a stumbling block to me, away from me, and that's when he leaves the wilderness. Being a stumbling block to others, you are aligning yourself with the work of the enemy. But when you consider others as more important than yourself, even to the point of allowing that to restrict your own freedom, you are aligning yourself with Christ because that is exactly what he did for you. So Jesus is drawing a very clear line in the body of Christ saying, this is how you get along. This is it. There's no magic potion for getting along with other people that you disagree with. It's just simply considering them to be more important than you and saying, I definitely don't want to be a stumbling block. That sounds like a bad way to go. And so if that means I've got to have less of freedom, less room to move around and do what I please in my life, so be it. I don't want to be a stumbling block. And this is how we move through these disagreements we have. There were not a lot of great public examples of this over the past year. People dividing over dumb things like politics. unable to have a difference of opinion without destroying the relationship. What that means is somebody, or both somebodies, were unwilling to say, I'm not going to be a stumbling block to you anymore, and just zip it, or stop typing, or whatever. And Jesus is saying this is, and we'll see this when, one day when we go through First and Second Corinthians, there's lots of lots and lots of these very specific examples of Paul saying, just... Just stop. Your thing, your gift even, is not more important than loving your neighbor. But I'm called to prophesy. Not like that. Stop it. I'm I'm a prayer warrior, and I should be able to pray more than them. So I'm just going to pray louder. Stop it. Pray less. That's what he says. Prophesy less. Pray less. Use your gift less in preference to your brothers and sisters. hardcore. It starts with Jesus saying to Peter, just pay the tax. 
so. This is how the church remains unified throughout history. This is how it's worked. So when we become a stumbling block to someone else, we are aligning ourselves with Satan. And then when we choose others over ourselves, we're aligning ourselves with Christ. Okay? So consider how you enjoy your freedom in Christ. Because we have tons of it, don't we? So much freedom. There are surprisingly few rules in Christianity. We have the opposite reputation. But there are surprise. I would have made more personally. I would have made a rule, no ties. You know, I would have made lots of more rules. Let's be honest. The main rule is to love one another. Consider how you enjoy your freedom in Christ. Consider how you treat each other. Consider how you disagree with others. Consider how you express your opinions and exercise your rights. I mean, not only are we Christians, but we live in a, a country that is, rel- for now, very free. It's, it's crazy. You can go just stand on a street corner and say whatever you want about the president. Just blast it out to the universe. No one's going to throw you in prison. You're not going to get suicided that night. It's just, it's amazing. So how do you use it? How do you express your opinions? Do you do it in a way that attempts to not be an unnecessary stumbling block? Jesus' statement that it would be better to be drowned is no accident. He's choosing the strongest language he can. So next week we get into interpersonal relationships or the week after, depending, right? Reconciliation, rebuking one another, all these things get very specific. And every single one of us in this room have been in a situation like we're gonna, Jesus is going to describe. You may be right now. The foundational principle of all of that is simply prefer others over yourself. It's not about you. This starts with being more concerned with not causing someone else to stumble unnecessarily, even if that means foregoing some freedom that we hold dear. But I want you to start this morning, just begin to ask God, is this a, am I, am I, which person am I? <laughs> Who am I aligning myself with? Have I grabbed onto my own rights and elevated them above other people? Do I value my opinions more than I love other people? Am I willing to do that? Is that the, the aroma of my life? Or is it, wow, that person's got a lot of opinions. Wow, he just, whew, he doesn't mind saying what he thinks. I don't want that to be my reputation. I want it to be, I've disagreed with them a hundred times. And he's never gotten mad at me. He's never blown up at me. He's never cursed me. He's never demanded his own way. He listens to me when I have a problem with him. That's what I want my reputation to be. So why don't we stand up and I want to pray for that. And I especially want to pray for those who have been um, have been hurt. I think we don't hear this message very often about if you've blown it in your life in some way. It seems like nobody ever says, but you know, the person who tempted you into that's in trouble. And it was wrong. And so I just want to pray for you. 
Uh, maybe you had a dad who was horrible to you. Um, maybe you had a friend or a spouse or whatever. And I want to pray that you would just, the, the, the fact that Jesus takes that personally would minister to you this morning. And then I want to pray for all of us that we would be more loving. It's a hard thing to do. I want the love of Christ to come through me. So let's do that together. God, first I pray for those who are hurt or have been hurt. And God, for those who still struggle with guilt or condemnation over their own failures. God, I pray first that you would minister forgiveness and just that you would warm and soften their heart. God, that they would see that if they're a child of you, as you say in this story, if they are your child, then they are forgiven. They are free. And God, I pray that you would show them that you have been paying attention and their rejection is your rejection and their welcome is your welcome. And those who have been a stumbling block to them have been a stumbling block to you and you take that personally and you have not overlooked it. Lord, would you bring comfort that where the enemy has told them that they were alone and that you left, you just stayed behind when they went off down the wrong road. But God, I pray that they would see that you were with them every single step of that journey. God, I pray that you would help us to never be a stumbling block to anyone else. God, give us sensitivity to that. God, make us people who are quick to sacrifice, and to be restricted in order to love someone else well. And God, I pray as we get into the rest of this chapter, God, that you would uh, bring uh, reconciliation to old, old, old broken relationships. And new ones. <laughs> but God, the relationships that we sort of gave up on, say, well, that's too broken, that's too messed up. God, I pray that you would bring us to the point where we are, we are able to not fight for our own side and our own rightness, but we would be able to fight for other people. God, that you would make supernatural provision for that just in the way, same way you did for Peter. You would provide what is needed to make that happen in this church. God, I pray for restored relationships with kids where there's been brokenness, where there's just been a lot of water under the bridge, where kids don't talk to their parents anymore, where siblings don't talk to each other anymore. God, I pray that even today on Father's Day that there would be the beginnings of reconciliation in those relationships. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week. <laughs>